Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Bray is a renowned restaurant and 23-acre farm in Birragara, Victoria. Bray is co-owned and led by Chef Dan Hunter. We caught up with Dan to unpack the thinking and processes behind Bray's innovative and incredibly detailed dining experience. He shared how their pursuit of pleasure drives the creation of food that evokes emotions, memories and delight, how they incorporate lesser-known cuts of local meat and how they practice regenerative farming. I hope you enjoy the chat. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Uh, yeah, hi. Thanks, Ben. My name is Dan Hunter. Uh, I'm the owner and chef at Bray, a restaurant um, in a small town called Birigara. It's in the Otways, the Otway hinterland in Victoria. And uh, what do I do? At work, I prepare food for people with a team of others who are very willing and able and very dedicated to the cause and and, and we just try to provide a an experience through food and through place that hopefully enlightens and enriches people's lives. Can we start with how you became a chef? Sort of the old school way. Um, I'm approaching 50, so people probably don't have these same career paths anymore, but essentially left school uh, without a plan um, and didn't, didn't gain a plan for some years afterwards, but certainly had a lot of fun choosing one um and yeah just was wishing to wishing to travel wishing to leave australia like you know sort of trying to get out and get away from what i thought was a dead end sort of place and explore the world um and through that fell into kitchens as you do us who are in kitchens um and really just uh, at the very bottom at, at dishwashing um, and did that for some time and was just encouraged by the fact that within the culture of restaurants there's the acceptance of all and, and you know, the understanding that uh, we weren't the high achievers necessarily but certainly there's a place to achieve if, if you choose to and, and I was certainly... Um, very much taken by the the team mentality and the the openness and the uh, let's say the plethora of individuals working as teams um, certainly a place to be to be yourself. So yeah, got into got into got into kitchens through the back door literally um, in my early twenties. Uh, Travelled, did that as a as a means to travelling uh, internationally for a couple of years, and then. Within all of that, decided that it was something which I wished to pursue at uh, a much more refined and higher and, and and more of a level with greater understanding of the hows and whys and the whats. So, um, yeah, age 20, sort of 24, I think, I, I came back to Melbourne and and started a, what was then an adult apprenticeship at the time and got the 280 bucks a week and kicked off, you know. <laughs> What were some of those key learning experiences working in other restaurants in Australia and overseas that that shaped you before you started Bray? Um, well, they're very varied because I worked at very different ends of of the scale and very different 
different types of places. I've worked in pubs, seafood restaurants. I've worked in aged care facility. Um, I've worked as a casual temp chef when I wasn't a chef. I've worked as a sous chef in a pub in the UK when I didn't own a knife. You know, like so I've just <laughs> done very, very, very uh, varied things and all of those things were um, enlightening, enriching in their own way. Um, but, you know, it was sort of several years deep of thinking this surely isn't it and starting to sort of trawl through cookery books and traditional cookery books to essentially to inform and teach myself how to do the jobs I was being asked to do or had said I could do, to be honest. Um, and then, yeah, just going uh, maybe out of a, I don't know, it's funny when you think about it, maybe out of a fear of getting caught out or wanting to be uh, at the top of just wanting to know where it can go essentially. Um, just once I commenced sort of formal training and and I guess a, a qualification path, I did take it very seriously from then on and did did make sure that I did understand before I moved to the next step and I did take the time to not only work but inform myself outside of work and, and just sort of became my my life, so to speak. Um, whilst not giving up other parts of my life at that time, um, but certainly over time, sort of work and life and cooking and who I am, whatever, have just become sort of one one sort of thing, you know. It's not – we don't switch off and on anymore. We're just, we're just sort of on, you know. And is that lack of boundary between work and life, does that work quite well for you? Uh, you need to – you need – I need to um, – schedule in rest and that's becoming easier the, as the, the older I become because it's necessary um, but there's certainly there's certainly uh, keys to that um, being a successful you know way to live but I think I would assume and knowing other people in other creative fields or those who lead teams or those that are are managers or leaders within their organisations, no matter what it is, you know, that's that's what you do. That's who you are and, and you know, that's that's who you are. So so it's not a choice. It's it's my my interests and hobbies became my profession um, and then my profession became part of my life and now my life is who I am and there's other aspects that, are private or, or not as private, but essentially, um, you know, my wife Julianne and I, we, we run a restaurant and, and that's what we do and, you know, I'm essentially a big part of the creative force behind that, you know, or maybe not a force, the creative person, <laughs> you know. Was there a, a moment um, or some particular things that led you to starting Bray? Yeah, I suppose... It came out of never wanting to own a restaurant. Um, it came, <laughs> it came, it came totally out of the fact that um, under no circumstance would we own a restaurant, and realizing the deeper and more proficient you become in something, and 
something that's so linked to a point of view um, and an opinion, so to speak, um, that it was integral and necessary for us to own a restaurant to have um, a sense of freedom within our lives and a sense of not just creative freedom but, you know, some control over destiny because essentially um, when you're part of the labour force, which we all are, even those of us who who run businesses and own them, um, you're a commodity, so to speak, and, and the more skilled you are, the more you become a commodity unless you step outside of that. So um, being being good at something and working hard for someone else um, in my in my situation, just became less interesting um, and I thought I could be closer to my end game and to my team and to those who work with us um, if we didn't have to look over our shoulders so much. Can you describe the farm and the building that Bray occupies? Um, yeah, it's, it's look, it's a, today as it stands, it's a 23-acre farm Um and that's split into a couple of sections, but essentially uh, the restaurant um, and the restaurant facility sits on about uh, 13 acres and that 13 acres is made up of an original building from the 1860s, which is one of three buildings in the town at the time, um, <clears throat> a restored um, but old and, and, you know, it's an old building, so restoration is part of the, part of the deal. Um from the 1860s and then uh, on the back of that is tacked on some some varying renovations at times, um, some of them are a bit unknown, but essentially <clears throat> what seems to be, <clears throat> you know, sort of mid-last century um, until more recently. So you mean that there were some renos there that were there when you bought it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, Bray, Bray was named Sunny Bray um, by a couple of Scottish immigrants, um, the Bicknells in the 1860s. Um, they farmed pigs and vegetables uh, and barley, um, which is apart from the pigs is sort of what we do now. Um, and, yeah, it was a, a two-room sort of settler's cottage, you know, sort of two rooms and four fireplaces. Um, and essentially... Uh, Sunny Bray was the name of the property until more recently when we took it over in 2013 and renamed it Bray. Um, in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, it was a, a restaurant um, called Sunny Bray again. Um, so it operated um, sort of more full, more full on in its early days and then and more as a cookery school and and part-time restaurant in its later life um, and then in 2013 we took it over and did some further renovations to the existing buildings and extended some some space as well and um, and have sort of been doing renovations ever since, you know, just sort of every year doing something that we can afford at the time to improve the the offering for the guests but also for, for us who work there uh, each day. And then... 2016, we opened some accommodation on the property as well, which is six rooms um, designed by Six Degrees and um, a very lovely, amazing accommodation offering that sits out on six acres and looks across just, you know, sort of bucolic rolling hills of the Otways and some sheep in a shearing shed on the other paddock opposite. Um, 
and there's 10 acres dedicated just to sort of small-scale um, agriculture. Um, grain cropping has been something we've been doing for the last sort of four or so years and a bit of bit of grazing for a neighbour which helps keep the grass down and, and sort of fits in with the rotational plan we have on the on the paddock, but it's a 10-acre block. And then, yeah, the, the rest of the property is... Um, is fruit orchards and olive grove and vegetable gardens and water catchment areas like dams and water tanks and, and stuff like that. So, you know, car park, shed, all those types of things. Um, it's a small it's a small farm for agriculture. It's a very large piece of grass and other things for a restaurant. What is the experience that you want people to have when they come to Bray? Um, detachment. Um, but also, you know, from what they were doing, but um, attachment to what what is on offer in the space, you know. So, to 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 engage with with the environment, to engage with um, I don't know hedonism, some to pleasure, you know, essentially to be to be free for a few hours of being caught up in in whatever whatever they bring in with them. Um, and just to just to be in the time with us and 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 enjoy each other's company and ours and and the efforts that we've put into curating a space which is built solely for um, for pleasure and for you know connection to to the landscape and to whatever the season or the day is offering at that time. Um, but yeah, just a chance to to both reconnect and connect, you know, at the same time. Um, and yeah, just I mean, it's a restaurant. Like we 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 bring hopefully joy to people and allow them a chance to connect with each other and and see some new things, but also be reminded of some old things. And um, yeah, just have fun, really. It sounds um, it sounds incredible having been there almost sort of 10 years now, that mm. disconnection and connection, is that something that you still experience every day while running the restaurant? It's a very beautiful place and 10 years is a is a good amount of time to, to reflect on what you've done and certainly um, every day inside the building and at the table and working with individuals and you know living through this last two and a half years and all those types of things there's no doubt that um what we do has a challenge attached to it and i think you know we're it's a funny it's a funny it's a funny game today we're very tangled up with opinion and media and and you know the online voice is so strong today um we're tangled up with fashion we're tangled up with politics we, we've brought some of that ourselves you know we've brought the political discussion into um, restaurants some some chefs have done that stronger than others and and you know we're you know it's just a very it's it's a funny thing because I don't know that restaurants and hospitality um, in our country get the I don't know, the opinion on it as being so integral to culture and community is probably not um, given the same value as, I don't know, some of our churches. But, you know, where do people congregate? You know, where do people where do people celebrate? Where do they argue? 
where do they, you know, it's everything. Um, so we're really, we're really caught up in an integral part of, of the fabric of society today and, and we probably always have been, but just we're, we're not sure that the lay person or the normal person reflects on that or understands that. So inside the building it's, it's a pressure thing regularly because you're always evaluating every moment where you're sitting in the scheme of things and in any day every table has a different opinion. You know, it's opinion. Like if we, the three of us, go to the art gallery, you love it, I hate it, you don't mind it, next painting, I love it, you hate it, you don't mind it. You know, like it's just the same thing is perceived so differently. <clears throat> um, so you've got to trust yourself. But looking at the property and looking at all the work we've done outside and, and freeing yourself from from those types of encounters and thoughts and opinions and whatever is that the landscape is very beautiful and the, the work that we've done on the property um, to enhance what is there um, and to bring a very Australian uh, space to people's mindset to plant, you know, focus very, very heavily on, you know, Indigenous species of plants to this region, not just, you know, not just things from Western Australia, um, and to you know, get involved in architecture, which is really complementary to not only the landscape but the history of the place and see in the region, you know, red bricks and these these sort of sight lines of shearing sheds and, you know, things like that that are just sort of are in this area um, and then see what is a very luxurious accommodation but with the the outline of, of a building that has existed in this region for a couple of hundred years, um, you know that's that's all really important to us, and and I think you know it's it's nice to be you know it's nice to have planted trees nine years ago and they're thirty foot high and know that you did that and um, that opinion can't change that can't go out of fashion that's positive and it's very beautiful to look at you know <laughs> so yeah there's a it's a very strange it's a very strange um, existence in that sense that it's not a normal restaurant we don't just go and open a door that we rent in the city and and that we have a a big picture sort of mentality with everything we do and um some of those ideas and and things that we've put in place have are now reaching a point where they're they're looking very good and they're providing all the energy that we wish them to provide when we thought about it seven eight nine years ago you know what are some of the design considerations you've you've made to the to the dining space at Bray that are really important to how people will experience their meal? It's I don't know. It's very it's a it's a simple it's simple. You know what's what is that? What is it? What does it mean? It's not sparse. Like it's not it's not so minimal that it's there's nothing there. Like it's a very very detailed experience, and um, a lot of that I think goes under the radar. Um, but it's the sum of those parts which makes for comfort. It's the sum of those that, those parts which make for, you know, a really a really rounded out experience of of feeling like everyone's had their eye on something and everything's being considered. You know, and it's not just we don't just do that with the food. You know, it's from you know handmade ceramics made specifically in design process with myself and a ceramicist and. And using clay or from our dams, and using ash from our wood fire for glazes and things like that. So something is very much entwined with 
with not just what we do but the place. Um, and then using quite simple in the dining room, very simple, um, you know, almost almost stripped back, stripped back um, materials, and 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 not using too many. Like it's pretty much it's it's pretty much wood, steel, and glass really. Um, and then the ceramics come to the table, but it's 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 uh, you know it's a weatherboard house. It's a house. It's an old house, and the tables are they don't have we did have a linen on them originally, but they just they're just oak tables and um, and very very comfortable chairs. You can sit in all day long and not feel like you need to get up, which is important for what we do. I was actually going to ask about the chairs. Yeah, it's important to have a comfy chair. I think when you're having a long meal. Many people have bought the chairs from our restaurant, um, found out who supplies them and gone and contacted the supplier for their houses after eating at Bray. So, um, yeah, they're, they're very comfortable. And, yeah, just um, just very clean lines, very much a, a space which is there's no delineation. The, the kitchen is on view, um, but it's not necessarily open, but it's looking through glass for some of the time and, Lots of windows to bring the outside in the whole time, so you're constantly observing, you know, what's happening, whether it be coming in sideways in, you know, a spring downpour or it's scorching hot in summer and it's browning off. Like you're very much aware of of outside. And and for international visitors, it's undoubtedly that you're in Australia. You couldn't be anywhere else. Like what you see from the table is pretty much only Australian native plants and trees you know so um it's and that's very important for australians as well like many people have commented that they feel so grounded in that space and so much um aware of the space and the and feel not like at home but feel very comfortable in the space which is nice when you're you know we're in a regional town where we're a farm our mates are farmers. We're surrounded by farms. Birigar is a—it's a very mixed community. Like it's not just a—not just an agricultural community. It is a very mixed community, which is good. It's got a lot of, uh, a lot of groups interested, like you know, arts-based groups, and 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 there are the sporting teams, of course, like all country towns. But it's not sort of not dominated by the sporting clubs, which is not to say that they're not important for the town, but it's good to have another voice, you know. Um, so yeah, a lot of those people, particularly farmers, celebrating something—the the birthday, the anniversary, the son or daughter's twenty-first engagement—all those types of things. Although we don't do big groups of parties, they still come with the family and or close friends, and they're the type of people who wouldn't go to a big city restaurant. They're the type of people that wouldn't wouldn't drive into town and go to a city restaurant and be called sir and madam, they just wouldn't do it. But they come to Bray, you know, and they feel like it's theirs a little bit, you know, like it's, they belong, which is nice. And not to say that any of those city restaurants wouldn't make them feel like they belong, but, you know, it's it's more in the individual feeling comfortable in the space, which I think is important. That it allows all people to feel comfortable, you know. You used to and perhaps still do have a, a dish at Bray called iced oyster. <laughs> we don't and anymore. Don't anymore, <laughs> yeah. But I, I did hear that it was uh, a dish that even people who had a strong aversion to oysters were often willing to try. And I wondered 
if it, it seems like um, one of the themes at, at Bray might be reframing and, and potentially challenging preconceptions. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Look, I mean, I think to be fair, also many people who loved oysters hated that dish. You know? so, <laughs> and and I'm, actually okay, I'm actually okay with that because, I mean, and as you say, it's a reframe or, or, or look at preconceptions. Look, I think... Um, I think there's certainly been times uh, in the menu development and the offering at Bray that we've really pushed quite hard to, yeah, to shake things a little and to certainly um, to to put people in a moment that may be for them uncomfortable um, and we're asking them a lot to to go with us on this, to, to, to be a part of what we're doing and, and to trust, which is not easy for everyone. And around food, you'd be surprised how few people are willing to trust, even in a restaurant like ours, how many people still have an aversion, you know, like an adult man can eat a mushroom. You don't have to say you can't eat a mushroom, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's not sure. you're not a ba- you're not a baby, you know. Like it's if you're not allergic to it, just eat the thing. You, <laughs> like just, just trust us. But essentially, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly been times when some of the dishes have I've, I've certainly set out um, with a very strong intention to to rattle a little bit, um, but always the intention is for pleasure. Let's never I've never done anything food related that is to to shock and then harm or to shock and then anger or to shock. And these are all things that have occurred, by the way. But, um, but, but you know, like, I mean, we talk a lot about in our own culture within the restaurant about, you know, if you're giving, if you're teaching something in some, to someone or you're showing something to someone or you're a manager and you're instructing someone that for those receiving that information to be, to be open-minded and to be aware of the fact that, everything's always coming from a good place. Like you've got to be, you've got to be open to the fact that anything that happens at Bray between ourselves and the guest or ourselves and the outside, our intention is always that it's for good. Our intention is always that it's for pleasure or to enrich or to enhance. And if the means to get there is sometimes a little bit harsh just to let it, just go with it because hopefully on the other side of that is the intention and that is is pleasure you know so um you know putting a piece of of very rare duck on a plate and throwing around a, a sauce that looks like blood and you know things like that which it's not it's just beetroot but it looks like a shot you know um it can be it can be perceived as aggressive i suppose but um you know like food doesn't come in plastic it, it's, it's got to get to plastic before it came to in plastic you know so we try and show a very real raw uh example of of reality um just that some of the dishes also look like a jewelry box and they're much more appro- approachable you know like people are more people are more fond of like of of beauty and and like the miniature and the delicate and the floral and all these types of things. Um, but 
that's some of what we serve. And the other thing is the other bit of what we serve is a restaurant based in the middle of a, a hunting and agricultural area where people shoot food, you know, that we're serving, you know. I'd like to hear a little bit about how critical the research and development process mm-hmm. is at Bray and and what kind of benchmarks that a dish might need to hit in order for it to make make it into the restaurant and onto a guest's plate and also just around sustainability and if there's some dishes that you might you might want to make and then realize you cannot source that ingredient sustainably yeah i suppose um well that's easy we don't serve food that we don't agree with so that that's a very simple pretty simple sourcing requirement for us um is it does it meet the same criteria that we use for ourselves? Uh, do we know the people? Um, have we visited and checked out with our own eyes? Have we had a discussion and asked around about others who know them? And and not not to forget that the far majority of food that we serve at the restaurant in terms of animal protein, I suppose this is where this question is most where there's most discussion about it in in probably the general public um, with with a farm to table restaurant, you know what I mean. Um, but most of the protein served in this restaurant is from this region. So um, our deliveries occur from people who grow food. Like we don't we don't generally have a middle person um, drop off meat, um, but we may have a butcher drop off meat because the farmer dropped the meat to the butcher and he was coming past or he lives next door, which is one of the butchers in town. Is he joining property across the road to ours? You know, so we, you know, currently in the the sort of meats that we serve at the restaurant, um, we serve a wild shot deer at the moment um, in the restaurant and um, it's a local guy who has given up being an ambulance driver after 20 years and has started his hobby as a business and he has a licence to go out into the Otways a few nights a week and he shoots um, what is a pest in the Otways but a very delicious meat um, off a large property uh, so it's wild but you've got to be on a private property for it to count. You can't just go and shoot in the National Park. Um, and that property is owned by a person who owns a, um, a pretty significant abattoir in Western Victoria and processing facility. And he has the Victorian licence to hang wild game in his facility. Um, and then another guy who is a pig farmer of this area, um, Xavier Mead, he takes that venison and he butchers it at his farm where he's got an on-site processing facility now and then it comes to Bray through one of those guys um and then Zave grows um Berkshire pigs and he serves us pork when we serve it and then the other sort of protein that we serve regularly is um duck um the breed is Peking and it's from a family down in Port Campbell and Great Ocean Ducks is the company name and um, so we serve ducks from them and we've worked with them for sort of, you know, on 10 years. So um, that's a very easy thing. We've 
we we know all those blokes. We know their practices. We know what they do. We know the processing even, um, and we have strong relationships. And they bring it to the door. And you know, during COVID, they supported us, and we support them. And it's very cyclical. You know, like they have all eaten in the restaurant on numerous occasions, and and we buy their food, and their money comes back to us sometimes. You know, so it's that's that's a nice thing. Um, Vegetables, we grow mostly what we can, um, depending on the year, the season, the rainfall, all of those things. Um, can be anywhere between, you know, look, literally 70% in the depths of winter and as high as 90% uh, in summer, um, which I think is fantastic. We grow, we grow grain and that doesn't sustain us forever, but, you know, we use very small-scale grain growers after that for for flowers and we mill flour on site as well. Um, And then seafood, we get a mix of, you know, Victorian species and things out of Apollo Bay, Southern Rock Lobster out of Apollo Bay. And, you know, like we might get one or two lobsters some week because we're a small restaurant and we get very large lobsters. Um, And... One single person will drive that up from Apollo Bay for us because we've been buying them off for years and, you know. So we have very strong relationships in the region, dairies from the region, um, Schultz Dairy, biodynamic for 35 years. Um, I get Schultz milk. I like yeah, milk. so, you know, so we, 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 f- we firstly look inside the region. I don't tend to think of dishes out of nowhere. I don't, I don't, I don't. In all honesty, I don't waste time doing that anymore. I don't just sit at home and imagine something appearing on a plate. Like I'm very much driven by the environment. So um, probably get caught off guard sometimes and, and probably more regularly now more happy to be dictated to by what's on offer rather than trying to make something on offer that's not or getting caught up in a a supply chain that's not possible and things like that. Um, so, yeah, try to foremost use stuff from the region um, and then if we if we find something's great but it's outside the region, we def- definitely try and stay in southwest Victoria um, and probably consider that our, our total region anyway, not just the Yachtways. Um, and then, you know, central Victoria and then, and then sort of go, go bigger and... But try to stay in Victoria. Try and stay as much as possible within the climate. You know, I think it's food, and and you sort of tend to feel in what we do. And if we're trying to, I don't know, take the edge off a bit sometimes. You know, you eating the food in the season, and you can see the season. It just it's got some grounding nature to it. You know, it's it's got some uh, calming effect. I think to eat what you can see or and not eat what you can see but if it's if it's raining in winter and you're getting served a tomato or a blueberry it just doesn't quite feel right unless you're in a restaurant in new york you're not looking out the window you know like it's yeah so um that type of thing is important and yes we do i mean you know we get we get sent we make acquaintances with people and we ask about what they do and we do ask about their farming practices. We do have the cold, hard questions. And we haven't used products that we've thought were delicious um, because they haven't met a criteria that 
we sort of we sort of want to keep to. Um, and you know, it is exhausting to try and go down the path of everything you're looking at and and serving. And look, I'm not going to make some ridiculous claim that we haven't at some point served something that doesn't meet the criteria because if I buy some onions from the organic market in Melbourne, I still don't know that they're organic because not everyone's stamped. You know, like it's, 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 you're putting trust in things. You're putting trust in the food chain. You're putting trust in the, in the facilities that are saying they're meeting criteria and you've just got to do that. Like if we don't have that trust, like what do we have? But, but essentially on the big picture items, on the things that will be a, a showcase on the menu or a standalone ingredient on a dish or something that other things are centred around, we're very careful to make sure that it, they're, they're within a criteria that we agree is okay for us. What is the most delicious dish at Bray? Um, oh, jeez. Tricky. I mean, I hope... I hope lots of things are delicious. I mean, right now, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right now there's things. I mean, it just depends how you approach them, isn't it? It just depends on your, on your, on your background and what you know. Maybe we should go your favourite. Well, I mean, for me, like I really like caramelised flavours. Like I really like deep, long, savoury flavours. And I think, I think, you know, in a in a broader sense. One of the things we try and do in a in a menu such as ours, which is multiple plates across multiple hours, with people's interest levels going up and down based on their conversation or their sugar levels or their, you know, intoxication sometimes or, or whatever, um, you know, and to hold to capture their attention to keep them focused on on what we're doing. Um, the flavours can't be shallow. The flavours can't be tinny or they can't be high-end all the time because you just sort of like you lose them. It's just not enough to capture them. And um, so I'm very much interested in in not only the dishes but the moments in between the dishes being served, which hopefully is short, but there is that time where you you eat something delicious, you roll back on your chair and in your own mind, no matter what's going on around you, you just you just leave for a second and you just roll that flavour around on the sides of your mouth, on your tongue, on your palate, on your saliva, and it just hangs there and it hangs there and hangs and hangs and hangs. And the very, very best food, it hangs. The very best wines hang, you know. And that's, that's I guess, umami, that's savoury. That's, that's bringing all the flavours together, all balanced, all nice and tight, no matter what acid was there or what sweetness was there, but eventually they pass and you just hang on this this depth of flavour. And I try and achieve that in every dish. So no matter what the dish is, somewhere in the dish is going to bring that depth of flavour. Um, so that's achieved with different things. That's achieved with, you know, fermentations or, or roasting or caramelisations or, or, or textures like you know, coating things with egg yolk or, or bringing fats to, to, to mouthfeel, all these types of things that you can bring into a dish to, to capture that moment and to just drill down on someone's palate. So um, we might do things like uh, mix um, fermented um, rye, so grow rye, ferment it with a chicken stock, so make a roasted chicken. So there's a lot of process. Like I make a so grow the rye, cook the rye, ferment the rye inside a chicken stock, which is 
chicken wings and chicken frames roasted with water, very dark, pour that onto rye grain, take the oxygen away, ferment that for weeks, undo that rye grain. You've got this super depth of flavour now, it's just caramelised. Mix that with an egg yolk, mix all of that with a seaweed oil, shake it all together and then pour that over vegetables. You know, so the dish is vegetables, the dish is a minestrone of vegetables in the garden, but the base flavour is just like this ridiculous, unctuous depth of flavour and then sprinkle, I don't know, cured, uh, shaved cured fish row over the top and just take it to 10, you know. And so things like that. So just doing just doing things which are us, which are vegetables, a lot of vegetables, mostly vegetables today, probably for some time. You know, there's the protein dishes, but essentially, and there's a lot of seafood, but a lot of people are leaving the restaurant at the moment, multiple repeat guests saying, geez, it's just, it's turned into a vegetable restaurant. And it is, it's a vegetable farm. Of course, it's a vegetable restaurant. Um but then the, the nature of what we do is just not just extracting flavour but, but building flavour on top of that, you know, so building, just building and building and building without going over the top. So that has to be balanced. That's a dish which is high up on the menu at the moment. It's like the third thing you eat. Um, so you've got to be careful. You can't, you can't start too hard. And so after that, where do you go? You can only keep going. You, know, you can only keep pushing, pushing flavour. So um, yeah, they the the dishes that Bray are uh, potentially simple to look at. Sometimes um, there's a lot of work and there's a lot of eye for detail within them. There's a lot of aesthetic to them, um, but I think I'm confident, particularly at the moment and today that um, there's a, a flavour and depth of flavour, which is our flavour, which is the flavour of this restaurant. A lot of restaurants have their flavour. Um, and and ours is probably pretty savoury at the moment. Um, and those flavours hopefully just go on and on through the menu. Um, and they don't stop. They don't, at dessert it's the same. At the dessert it might be some, you know, just in the end of our one of the citrus seasons of the year here at the moment and, you know, we've got a thing on the menu called Halftime Orange, which is just a little nod to, you know, the little kid running out at halftime nice. with the oranges. I like it. And it's just a, a cut orange hollowed out and there's just layers of citrus through it and there's a at the bottom there's a a, a jam made out of carrots um, which have been soaked overnight in, in orange juice with, um, lime zest through it and it's cooked down with sugar and it just goes this really sticky, beautiful citrus zesty thing. Um, and on top of that, there's a a burnt orange custard. So we, we it's a traditional sort of creme anglaise and we completely um, just sort of fuck with the, the, the recipe of creme anglaise and traditionally you wouldn't cook that over 82 degrees because you get scrambled eggs, but we make scrambled eggs with it in the oven and just, caramelize it till it's very very dark um and then add some fresh cream to it and then bring it back together in a in a food processor and make this really deep caramelized orange custard um which is just phenomenal and then that goes on top of that jam and then on top of that there's a a granita made out of um this week out of blood oranges from our orchard and um it's very simple it's just a 
we're half-time orange, but there's there's just all the citrus is grown here and it's all just caramelised to buggery and it's delicious, you know. My mouth is watering. Sounds amazing. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> I'm so do you, could you talk a little bit about the underappreciated seafood or the idea of, of serving underappreciated seafood and um, just – because I think you've also touched on that really with with the cuts of meat you've described. These are um, probably not seen in in mainstream as uh, the most um, valued cuts of meat. So I'm just wondering if you could also just talk about how you do that with seafood and the types of seafood that you use. Look, I think um, often the the most delicious seafood is is the darker seafood. You know, when we're talking about this realm of flavors, we've just been discussing. Um, often it's the mackerels or the sardines or the anchovies and things like that, which are, which have those types of flavors. They have those deep, those deep savory flavors. And of course they're salty and and whatever, but essentially, um, there's a depth of flavor to them. And that's, you know, I'd put, I'd put other products like calamari and things like that in that, in that as well. But I guess calamari is just sort of almost a luxury product these days, the way it's priced and, um, you know, and everything is 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 getting more expensive, and um, things need to have a different value. And I guess um, you know, for us, we've always we've always really championed species like blue mackerel or slimy mackerel, and um, you know, and mussels and and things which which still are not expensive in the marketplace, but but have a short shelf life and have a short shelf life from from catching to to usage as well. And, you know, I think a lot of us aren't buying seafood. A lot of us don't, as a habit, buy fresh seafood and potentially we don't know what we're looking for and then we're not sure, some of us, of how to prepare and cook it in the best possible ways because it's not culturally part of what we do. You know, it's it's fish and chips or it's white fish and snapper, um, you know, it's things like that. And so, look, on one hand, we we love species like southern rock lobster. I think it's one of the, the primo species in Victorian waters and uh, Apollo Bay has long been a, a rock lobster fishery and a crayfish fishery and my brother-in-law is actually a crayfisherman. Um, and, you know, so they're great but we tend to not go for the glamour ones either we we really like the ones that come off the shelf near king island like so you know it's about 80 k's offshore for polo bay you go out it's quite shallow through there and then it just drops off on a deep shelf and on that shelf is is this really amazing interaction between deep water fish and and the shelf and the shallow water species and down there um there are uh quite a few lobsters that don't really sell in the marketplace three kilo four kilo these big things that again have this depth of flavor have this gaminess which is amazing and then i guess you know closer to shore the the blue mackerel is something we love the flavor of it it is hard to prepare it's hard to get it um to what you require even even for making simple stocks out of it um we we require a sashimi grade sort of type of of mackerel and that means you know, it's very fresh. It's undamaged. It's maybe six hundred to eight hundred grams in total weight. They're small. They're very silver and blue. The meat is is dark. It's got a bloodline. It's beautiful raw. It dries out very quickly when you cook it. It's great marinated. 
Um, but to make a fish stock out of it, it's incredible. And to make a roasted fish stock out of it, so a lot of the sauces are based on single ingredients at our restaurant. So in this case, we have a dish on at the moment of just some, um, it's barbecued calamari. Um, it's southern calamari. And I cook that quickly in a, in a basket above charcoal once it's been cleaned up, cut into little strips. And the sauce that goes on that is a is like a butter sauce which has been made out of roasted mackerel. Um, so whole mackerel, no guts, head still on, um, roasted dark um, as if you're roasting a, a roast chook or a piece of meat, whatever. And then we take those mackerel without breaking them up and just put them into a pot and cover them with their same weight of water, such as water and mackerel. And that simmers for about six hours, like hardly moving, and we just it's like a tea, it's an infusion, just extracting everything out of the mackerel so there's nothing left. And it makes a very dark, golden, intense, intense roasted fish stock. Um, and we blend that with a bit of butter and some finger lime and pour that over this calamari with some citrus and other vegetables and things. But um, yeah, it's a sauce that we've always made and, and really, really enjoy. So we, we go through a lot of that. Um, and yeah, just like suppose, you know, yeah, it's 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 just not getting caught up in the in the wedge of fish. Like you know, more recently, as um, the markets probably improved for it and the productions improved for it, you know, Murray cod is Aussie fish. You know, sort of almost gone through overfishing and now being farmed very well in not in Victoria but in New South Wales, so quite away from us. But it's an amazing product and. Um, you know, growing it in in dams, but off the bottom of the dam in sort of netted dams, which the, the fish can't go and live in the mud and they live in sort of a clean, natural, you know, still water and unsalted water. Um, so just trying to bring products to the table. And, again, for us it's, you know, it's lots of small plates, <clears throat> not small in the sense they've got no flavour, but, you know, they're, they're – <laughs> There are a number of plates in sizes that wouldn't normally constitute a meal sure, um, sure. and it's the sum of the parts which makes that meal. So for us, we're able to, to pull out species or cuts or parts of vegetables or, you know, whatever we choose that you wouldn't normally eat and bring them together in a place in a, in a moment that's delicious and quick and over sometimes Um so it's just like a you know just a little hit of of, of flavour. So you know again looking for those caramelised flavours, those darker flavours, those umami flavours. We often find that they exist in, in different seafood. Could you give us a brief rundown of some of the sustainable practices you employ at Bray? Yeah, um, <clears throat> look, I think I mean it's a range. It's 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 as far reaching as as. The construction of the an operation of the the accommodation facility to to you know working in a small community and and considering the sustainability of people as well you know like it's it's not just all environmental um, but certainly you know we practice regenerative farming you know we, we we our intention is to always be feeding rather than just extracting. That's a simple. Could you give us a quick summary of regenerative farming as you go? Well, I think I think that's it. I think I think in the most simplest form, it's it's the concept of continually feeding and not just extracting. It's just that okay. simple. It's it's okay. it is it is that you need to replenish 
um, in order to sustain. You need to to be aware of the fact that anything you remove, um, even weeds, like even what we call weeds, um, have a have something that they're doing. So monoculture of anything is not great and um, photosynthesis is occurring through all types of plants. Um, so if we're trying to capture carbon and at the same time we're spraying out weeds, we're sort of we're sort of fighting against the, the process in, in some respect. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to lock things away um, through having green pastures, through having coverage of plants, through having multi-species, through having... Um, depth of root systems and all these types of things. Um, and if we are constantly uh, getting rid of the species we are choosing to say we don't wish to have as our main objective, then we're we're fighting against ourselves. So we have we try and keep the ground covered. We try and keep it covered. And of course, there are outbreaks of things we would prefer not to have. Um, because at some point they become detrimental in, in the fact that they may attract insects that we wish not to have or anything like that. Um, so there is obviously uh, a process and system of, of removal and awareness, um, but it's not the end game to constantly be getting rid of weeds. And weeds is just a word we made up. Weeds is just a word we made up to describe things that we don't like um, that aren't the the crop that we're focusing on. So... Um, in the growing areas, it's important to have to have healthy soil. Um, in the other areas, it's 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 healthy to have uh, ground cover. Simple as that. Um, so yeah, so we don't use chemical fertilizers. We never have. We don't use pesticides and herbicides. We're uh, an organic farm, and we're not we're not. Um, like many who practice, we aren't uh, a certified organic facility. Um, I wonder if it would, you know, make people happier if we were or if that's important, but essentially we're, we're comfortable in the fact that we farm in a way that is um, synthetic-free and we farm in a way that's quite natural using um, the environment, using plants, using labour and machinery, um, using scientific understanding and know-how of, of how things function and we find that it's always a battle, it's always constant, it's always labour-intensive, you're never satisfied with some of the outcomes, you have crop failures and all of those things but a few years ago when my daughter was younger and she was three years old and she was walking around this property eating broad beans and strawberries off the ground, I, in that moment, thought to myself that I would never spray a chemical at this restaurant or this place because it's unsafe. It's not, it's just a, it's just a hidden, like, thing that's not safe. So I want the food at Bray to be not only uh, enriching and delicious and whatever, but I want it to be safe. And and I'm not going to say healthy because going to a restaurant and eating for three hours and drinking booze is not healthy. It's fun. <laughs> it can be safe, you know. You know. So yeah, that's that's that. Um, lots of native trees and plants. Like we've planted a lot of lot of things and and we continue to do so. And and I guess really focusing on 
the the species of this place um, that grow exceptionally well and you only have to plant a local species plant in your own environment to watch how much better it does than other species. So it sort of makes sense when you want a result, you want a garden and you want biodiversity and you want to bring in birds and good insects and things like that to your area that you just plant your local species. So we do a lot of that and that's created a really amazing um nature hub i suppose in the in the property and you know in summer we have snakes and there's echidnas on the property and there's shitloads of bees and there's birds everywhere and there's all these things and um it's nice and at night time when you walk out of the restaurant all you can hear is frogs because there's dams and there's just frogs everywhere and yeah it's not great when a snake goes through the car park in summer and it's you know a five foot bloody i don't know something red belly black or something or you know lowland bloody taipan or whatever but but essentially <laughs> it's their place you know it's, it's theirs and i think if you looked at brave from an aerial map and saw the paddocks around it being essentially um essentially sheep grazing area um everything's sort of everything's coming to Bray to hang out so you know other farms probably don't have the same nature that we have and and everything in the district sort of hanging around here which is just very beautiful and nice and it, it functions as an organic property if you've got an organic you know program for your vegetables you need to have insects on your property you need to have birds and you need to have biodiversity so having these nature hubs is something that it actually helps everything to function correctly as well you know so um what else i mean you know we have solar we 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 produce um solar uh on the on the accommodation and it's you know it's the accommodation is a carbon neutral building so it's producing more energy than it uses um at this point in time and it's you know worm farm wastewater management we process all wastewater on site um capture rainwater we serve rainwater in the restaurant and make all our stocks and sauces and things and breads out of rainwater and um you can have a sparkling version at the restaurant table there's about 160, 180,000 litres of rainwater tanks on the property. So that's, and I mean, they're bloody full at the moment, apart from always watering the gardens and grounds with, with captured dam water as well. Um, waste reduction, you know, we in the kitchen we're, we're processing compost on site. So probably, you know, a, a kitchen, I mean, restaurants make a lot of waste. Restaurants traditionally are a very wasteful type of business. And I think as much as, it pains to say it because it's my industry. But if you were to walk in a, uh, the back alley of any any major sort of restaurant street in the city, I think it's quite shocking still today at the amount of waste that's getting put just into landfill. You know, and I I don't actually hold the restaurants responsible for that. That's a city council's problem. Do you know what I mean? That's the people taking the rents and the rates and all those things to deal with properly. And I don't know that we're doing that in Australia. I don't know that, particularly in cities where there's high consumption and there's much higher waste and it's visible and it's got to be taken somewhere else, um, that there is a program for proper waste reduction City of Melbourne. You know, like restaurants should not be throwing out green waste. There should be city-managed compost facility in Australia that's selling, you know, compost to agriculturalists. That should mm-hmm. occur on a mass scale, you know. Like it seems crazy. It's, it think- is starting, I think. Um, there are a few councils that, that do do it. Um, I would love to see the facility that they do it with. I would love to. I mean, because that little bin they give you, like you make more waste than that. You know, like it just where's yeah, it going? Yeah. When we, yeah. And when's it coming back? Where is it? You know, like it's 
because it's just it not. Seems like a lost opportunity as well for for it's you know money. it's a resource. Yeah, it's it's they're talking about you know ways to make income. There's huge money in that. There's massive money in that. Like so, yeah. I mean, every single alley, every should have a major compost facility, and there should be zero green waste going into into landfill. You know, um, and heaps would be. Yeah, even a vertical composting unit, they're pretty amazing. They could fit somewhere in the city and be totally fine. I think, is it Korea that has a really amazing, con- I think like now there's like, it's real hardcore in Korea. I've just read something recently about mm. if you live in certain areas and you're building, all buildings, new buildings or residential areas have these composting facilities and yeah, it's definitely frowned upon just by your neighbours if you're not using it, you know, so there's got to be a bit of ownership of it as well. Like it's got to be not turning the blind eye forever, you know. Um, but we, I mean, we, you know, we're not buying and we do. We definitely do buy food still. We definitely do buy fruit and vegetables still as well. I mean, it's it's pretty tough to to supply um, all of your own fruit and vegetables. Uh, it's a crazy claim if people are making it because, you know, it's we do a lot and we we can't do everything and we don't want to do everything because if I buy vegetables from a local grower, I'm supporting someone who's doing something in our community. So just cutting yourself off like an island I don't think is a very sustainable thing either, like having these these models where you don't interact with the rest of the world because you're sustainable is not sustainable. It's It means you're an island, you know. So um, we we still buy the large onions, you know, the big onions that go in a in a sauce or a stock that might take nine months to grow and and take up a whole paddock. We don't have space for that, and or or the desire to grow that, so we buy them or the big carrots or the big parsnips or these things that are larger and and typical. Um, we can source those things and grow them from from people that we wish to work with, you know. So we do that, but essentially we're still making in our kitchen because things are coming back from our garden and being washed by, you know, us in our kitchen, you know, if you use a turnip and you don't have a use every day for the greens of the turnip, which you might put in a sauce or in a soup or whatever, um, and we do find ways to use all that stuff, there's still a lot of dirt coming back into the kitchen and it's got to go somewhere and there's still a lot of roots of things that are coming back and and we easily are making probably 100 kilos a day, 80 kilos a day of of green waste that gets processed on site, you know. And so, I mean, we're currently a, you know, 24, 20-seat, six-seat six restaurant, 100 kilos a, a, a day. So what's a 500-seater doing in the city? Where's mm. that going? You yeah, know, it's incredible. Where is it? So, you know, so, so yeah, I think, I think um, waste reduction is important. So, you know, the basics of separating materials for recycling, that's great. Do we know what's happening with recycling at the moment? Probably not, but certainly green waste, I think, is a is a lost opportunity, and and it's certainly something where, because we see it as well. We see new employees start with us and have come from different cultures and don't understand through their training or through their awareness or where they've been shown, you know, what how to to not make waste, and everything just goes in the bin out of habit. I just put that in the bin, put that in the bin, put that in the bin. It's like goes in the compost we try and process that you know so there is a definite issue in industry with that but also i think that's you know city councils governments have to 
take that responsibility away from from people and, and enforce it. If you are um, composting and recycling, Dan, it sounds like there isn't much waste at Bray. Is there is there anything that you would consider actually waste that goes into landfill? Because it sounds sort of like a zero waste operation. Uh, it's not zero waste. I mean, I, I wish it was, but it's it's. I mean, I'm not. You know, it sounds still, pretty close. Yeah, look, I think we don't make a lot of rubbish. The truth is we don't, we don't, if we're talking about rubbish, if we're talking about, you know, stuff like that, we don't make a lot. Like, you know, any given week, our total, our total rubbish collection might be one and a half, two wheelie bins of, of waste um, a week, you know, and two massive bins of recycling and half a ton of green waste you know like you know it's this sort of thing so um so yeah so we 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 are pretty pretty good in that sense and and we do try and you know make sure that that i suppose the waste is is considered and under control and and you know we don't have bottled water and we don't we don't have milk in plastic bottles and we don't you know like we get vats of milk from Schutz and we fill up jugs in the kitchen and in the accommodation we use glass returnable bottles and, and you know, things like that. So we we try and do in bulk and, and I guess it's labour though. Like it's it's there's a cost involved in that, which is which sort of you've got to consider regularly as well. Like it's it's all well and good to sell this stuff, but there is a there is an a cost to working in this way and it's um you know, I suppose it's at some point about justifying, you know, does the guests care about your ethos that much that they're willing to help you pay for it? You know, it's the same as wanting cheap cheap plates of food on Victoria Street or wanting to see every time you go out that food only costs $8 like it did in the 90s, like, but then stamping your foot about restaurant wages you know like it's about what what are we as a society we do we want to partake in really you know dan bray's approaching 10 years of operation what's next look i think uh it's nine then 10 so we're not quite we're nearly at nine um and we are next year will be our 10th year and yeah look it's hard to know at this point like i'm still wondering what point of the timeline we are on uh, with the whole COVID shenanigans. You know, like it's it's uh, it's a tricky time for, for restaurants. I think it's a tricky time for small business. Like I think it's, um, uh, yeah, like we're, we're just still, you wouldn't think we would be. You wouldn't think that at 10 years and with the work and, and hopefully the reputation and whatever that you'd be, um still each day having to evaluate what you do and 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 find ways to be to be relevant you know it's funny but i think um we're sort of living through a a change of guard like certainly at my age been cooking for 26 years now phoned bray for nearly 10 years was a head chef of another pretty successful place for six years in australia before that you know i've worked in a restaurant in europe as a head chef that's for 10 years in the top 10 restaurants in the world, you know, like, so I've been in a period of time, which is, has changed dramatically. Um, 
the workforce has changed dramatically. The the values um, within the industry and society in general, I think, have changed fairly significantly in that time as well. Um, so sort of getting to this point in your career and realising that not all the old tricks work, you know, like having to to not redefine but certainly refine regularly um, what you do and how you approach it and 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 how, how you do it, you know. So um, creatively, it's a tricky time. It's a, a it's a, it's a time that requires energy. Um, you know, the the general public are uh, distracted regularly. It's it's about clicks and grabs and things to get attention, and and we sort of don't do that. Um, we try to just maintain a sort of steady as you go approach to things and we don't we don't I don't do lots of out dinners and I don't do lots of product repping and I don't even have an Instagram account at the moment and you know like it's just like yeah trying to be authentic at this moment is requires effort for sure for everyone um so for us I think the 10-year mark is is something to to get to um, and to be proud of that and each day we're working on what happens next, you know, and what happens next is, look, I think the, I think the period of long-term planning in the restaurant industry is almost over. Like I think, I think it's funny to say that, but I think, you know, when I, when we wrote the business plan for Bray, we were very, you know, honestly, it was like, it was easy. Just try and be the best restaurant in Australia, get on the world's 50 best list and, steer the ship home you know like and just be relevant and 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 provide a, a situation where people are having a great time basically um and that's sort of still the the plan to still try and be a reference point for what can be a great hospitality business in australia to have a very strong australian voice um and to to benchmark to be a benchmark, to be something for others to aspire to um, and to be and, and hopefully by doing that you you get through, you know. you I think aiming to be as good as you can be is certainly not a bad virtue and, like, it's certainly something to – but it requires work, you know, and it requires constant ongoing creative work, relearning, craft refining you know, all those types of things and, and but that's of interest to me as well. So that's that's actually okay because that's sort of how we are here also, you know, because we have always operated in that headspace of of that's quite not good enough. We're not quite there yet. We can do better than that. There must be a way to improve that. You know, all these types of things that are that can be tiring for the outsider to to hear that sort of stuff, but essentially it's a motivator to to have your eye on the detail all the time and to notice and to be aware and and to try and refine and improve and and get through to your guests in a way that you haven't previously, you know. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. This was so good. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for listening to Make Good. This podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at 
www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. If you'd like to learn more about Bray, check out their Instagram or their website. And if you'd like to stay in touch with Dan, check out his Instagram at Chef Dan Hunter. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamerlab.com.au.